my name is Augustine Colebrook. I'm the principal at the Bushery Wisdom Collective. My focus is on big picture political movements that are happening within the profession, some of the controversial questions, and centering voices that are not being regularly heard. I'm Layla Wyatt. I am a traveling student midwife, learning midwifery from cultures and a lineage of midwifery throughout the United States. I'm here to center the voices of students to hear their calling, their pathway, why they chose midwifery, and even share a bunch of birth stories along the way. Greetings. I'm Jamara Amani. I am a midwife, a mom, and a social justice activist. I am here to challenge white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, and anything that keeps people from being their best and living their best selves as we have the human right to do. And I am looking forward to sharing stories of birth justice on this podcast. Hi there, Delmar Bellamy. I am non-binary, queer, transgender, Latinx, midwife, and my focus is on increasing access and equity in midwifery care and midwifery education. Hello, my name is Angie Love. I am a community nurse midwife in Vero Beach, Florida at the practice of Midwife Love. I also do telehealth midwifery through Midwife RX. I'm a mama and I am committed to maintaining birth choices for all people and educating a future generation of midwives because we will not die out. What I'm hoping to do here is really highlight students around the world and their journey and their experiences, the goods, the bads, the uglies, the beautiful. And, you know, honestly, I've I've had a chance to interview a lot of students now and um, some of it is awe-inspiring and like, yes, that's amazing. I'm so glad. And the others are like, we've got to fix this problem, yeah. right? It, and there's so, a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of disconnect. There's a lot of one thing, like the, the, the common theme that has come up here is like the hazing, mm-hmm. like the midwifery hazing, <laughs> like they had a shitty experience. So now I have to make sure you have a shitty mm-hmm. experience. So that's kind of a theme that I think that needs to be highlighted throughout midwifery. Um, So I'm here to hear all of it, right? Every single piece, don't be afraid. Then I'd love to start you off by just introducing yourself, where you are, and um, then go into a little bit of like, why midwifery? What was your path here? Yeah, cool. So um, my name is Brianna Davison. I originally um, was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and just moved to Minnesota during the pandemic, which is a whole nother fun um, thing to do as a student uh, with knowing nobody in the birth world moving here. Um, That was fun. And um, so midwifery, I had always wanted to be like in the medical field in some way as a child. I was like, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a vet. I want to do, you know, something. But as I got older, being a doctor never appealed to me. I never wanted to do surgery. I never, you know, I, it just didn't. Um, so I went, you know, the complete opposite direction and went into film. So I have my first degree in filmmaking and then I had my first child and I didn't want to be gone for you know, like 120 hours a week. And it was just this major, like hyper-masculine world. And I just didn't like it at all. And it was awful. And I was treated terribly. And like, could I have stuck it out? Yes. Did I want to? No, I just, it just didn't. Um, so then I fell in love with um, body feeding and I decided to pursue um, 
becoming a lactation education counselor and eventually an IBCLC. So went that route, ended up getting pregnant with my second child, still had no idea what a midwife was. And I actually was like, people that have children at home, like, what is that? That's just super like strange and foreign to me. And, um, and then I had something very interesting happen with his pregnancy. I filed my application for insurance and my son got on the insurance and I didn't, I was lost in the paperwork, even though it was on the same application. And I was unable to be seen by anybody. And they were like, well, we can't take you as a cash patient because you have an application with insurance and it's insurance fraud, but we can't take you because your application hasn't been processed. So I was like, so what do I do? And they're like, well, you just have to wait. Okay, meanwhile, I'm here pregnant and I'm like 26. And um, I do have a couple health issues with like blood sugar stuff. Like I get low blood sugar really easily. Um, and so I was like, well, what do I, what do I do? And so I kind of had to go, well, I guess I'm doing this myself until I have insurance. And then by the time my third trimester came, I still hadn't been seen with anybody. I had done my interview multiple times, I think like two or three times at this point with the insurance. And they're like, we don't know what's happening. And so I had to end up going to the County hospital and just saying, can I at least have some labs drawn to make sure like I'm fine, you know? And so they drew a bunch of labs and then I talked to their insurance liaison there and they're like, yeah, we still don't even have you in our system. And I was like, how is this even possible? So I'm like, meanwhile, you're thinking like how many other people are dealing right, with this right now? Right, right. So I'm like, what is this crap? Like, this is awful. And so I remember going to the parking lot and I had a parking ticket on my car for like being in the wrong spot. So not only am I like 34, 35 weeks pregnant, something like that has no prenatal care at all. Because at this point I figured out what a midwife was, but I was like, I'm 26 and single parent by, by now also at this point. So I'm like, how can I pay for that? I can't pay for that. And, you know, I have no doctor because even if insurance got approved at this point, nobody would take me because I had been not seen by anybody. So that was the other reason I went to County. And so I'm like sitting in the car and I'm crying and I'm like, this is ridiculous. This is awful. I was like, so I like remember holding my belly and I was like, well, I guess it's just you and me little dude, like, and we're just gonna handle it. So I just, you know, tried to keep myself like as healthy as possible through my whole pregnancy. And it really kind of helped me connect with the process and I guess like the normalcy of it and like how maybe I didn't necessarily need somebody to monitor me a hundred percent of the time and taking back a little bit of that autonomy. And then all of that was stripped right away. Like when I had to go basically say catch to whoever was at the hospital, because I was like, okay, could I have done an unassisted birth? Yes. But I also have zero idea of where my placenta is. I have no idea if he's okay. I have no idea if I'm okay. Like, you know, so he came on his guest date, I was having some kind of sporadic contractions. I did have waters prematurely rupture. Um, I checked myself and I was like, uh, like three or so centimeters dilated. I had gone in the day before because I was having some like palpitation stuff and the nurse just treated me like crap. And she was like, you're only a one, you'll be pregnant for another week. And I was like, no, I'm feeling weird. Like I'm feeling not okay. Like I need somebody to just check me out. And she was like, well, you know, whatever, gave me the roughest vaginal exam I've ever had in my life, told me I was going to be pregnant forever. And, you know, it was, it was terrible. So then I came back in the next, you know, next day, I swept my membranes a little bit 
And I was like, no, we're just going to get this done. Showed up, had him a couple hours later. Um, and during that time, he had had some like decelerations because my water had been broken. They couldn't confirm it when I was there. So he had like lower fluids and he was go having, you know, coming really fast. And so having some compressions and they had like pinned me down, re rebroke a bag, put internal pressure catheters in me, were telling me what was going on, put oxygen on me, like all this stuff. And then like, you know, basically sat there and told me you're having a C-section. And I was like, uh, no, 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 no. So then I like my one saving grace was this amazing per diem nurse that doesn't work at the hospital. And so she put me in, you know, like side lying with my leg up on like the stirrup and we got his heart rate stabilized and she was like, stay in this position as long as you can. And so I'm unmedicated and I'm just sitting there and I'm like totally dissociated. And I was like, I'm just going to sit here so he falls out. And essentially yeah, that sideline position with a peanut <laughs> ball or a stirrup is no joke. Like no it's joke. good because it's helping that rotation. Like, you know, exactly why she yeah. put you in that like yeah. head oh, compression yeah. Or, yeah. or even like cord compression, head rotations yeah. happening. But like for someone unmedicated, literally that is the worst. It was like the they worst. flip and out, I like I get cussed out. And yep. <laughs> yep, yep. And I understand now why she did that. And I was like, thank you, because you saved me from having a cesarean. Um, but I, and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just going to do this till he falls out. I'm not having a cesarean. He's just going to fall out this way. And that's when I, basically what happened. He like fell out on the table and I was like, who's catching in? Is it, you know? And so it was just a really terrible experience. I was drug tested. I was treated poorly because I didn't have needle yeah. care. And she had ended up telling me what a doula was. And so I went up that route and then eventually, you know, now we're here and I'm like setting to be a home birth. Yeah. Right. So that's how we're here. So it's interesting to hear that like your path to midwifery was based on a really not like a really negative experience in your own birthing journey. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you like, cause I, I find that sometimes when midwives come into birth work in that way, there's going to be like two really hard and fast rules in their heart. And the first is either like, I will not allow someone to be treated how I was treated mm -hmm. or there's like held trauma in your body right. that like is going to hold you back in midwifery for a little while. And you got to like work through not like still holding on to this because you might have to make a hard decision in midwifery. And like, I'm not saying ever treat someone that way, but right. I'm just saying like, there's going to be a boundary in which you can't cross because of your license or whatever. And it's going to be a spirit work for you because you're, it's going to have flashbacks to that hard birth. Yeah. Have you run into anything like that? I do. And I think that's why it took me until 2018 from 2014 to finally make that jump to commit to education is because I knew I needed to, to do that, that work. Like and I heal before you yeah. taught. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did doula work for a while and for a long time, I was not necessarily anti-establishment, but I did feel that, you know, that wall and that block. And it was like, interventions are bad, interventions are bad, interventions are bad. And now I'm at that healthy place of like, you know what, if you need them, you need them. And I feel like that's a much better place to be with my practice now than, um, than what I was, you know, six years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. That, yeah. and that's, wow. That's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. it that's was a, a lot, lot of work. You did a yeah. lot of heart work and spirit work <laughs> to get there. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So you don't have to name the school, but tell me a little bit about the school that you're going to and why you chose that school. Yeah. So I started out doing Meek because I was in California and I 
picked that school because it resonated with me. You know, I looked at a bunch of different schools online and just their online presence felt really good. And they did have some samples up and, you know, so I, uh, I decided, okay, this is the one I, I'm that planner where I have to like research everything to, to death before I pick something. So I did. Um, and it started out as a pretty great experience. Um, and then it went downhill. Um, and so now so I'm- So how long from the time like you knew you wanted to go into midwifery mm-hmm. and you started doing the research mm-hmm. to choosing the school? About two by. years. About two, two years. years. I also had to save up um, some money because it's expensive. It's really cost prohibitive and there's zero financial assistance for it. Um, And I understand why certain states would want to start kind of streamlining it a little bit, but I also feel like it's, it's also kind of problematic because then they also don't want to give away for someone to be like nationally accredited or regionally accredited so that they can accept financial aid or FAFSA. And it's just, you know, it's, it's like seventeen twenty five thousand dollars and you have to pay like five of it up front on the low end, on the low end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah schools, and- so those who are listening, schools range everywhere from $9,000, um, mm-hmm. to, depending on the um, time and the accreditation and the in-person and the traveling and things like that, that you're going to. So yeah, very, very wide variety. So it took you two years to kind of do the research. And like I always say, when I'm, when people ask me, I said, yeah, yeah, I did like a, uh, um, you know, Venn diagrams and Excel spreadsheets and the pros and the cons and the, I, you know, like all of those, all of those things to try to get that one school. Um, And so what at first, like called you to this school specifically? I felt like the values that were presented online really, um, meshed with mine and then the samples of the work they had up kind of fit my learning style really well um and they had a few different sets you had to get through one type of set and then there was the second set and so they were showing the second set and I was like oh that fits my learning style so then when I got there I had to get through the first set and the first set was pretty awful um and the person that was the instructor for it um was really gatekeepy, really inconsistent with the grading. And my experience is apparently not unique. And it became this really unnecessary battle to even just pass. And it and I ended up having to escalate, escalate it. And it became like a, well, we don't know. And we don't know why you're not passing this. And it was literally down to like 0.5 of like a grading point. And I even went as far as to requesting um, samples of work from fellow peers and I'm looking at theirs and looking at mine and I'm going, why the hell is mine not passing? And, you know, and it would go from the paper I wrote in the module before being, this is the best thing I've ever read. You should submit this to Midwifery today to, you have no reading comprehension. And I'm like, how does it, you can't have it both ways. And, and then 
someone stating, oh, well, if you did this in person, everybody passes in person. And I said, but not everybody can do it in person. I'm a single parent and I can't just ditch my children and go to a different state or go up north or go wherever I am in, you know, relative location to this and spend all my weekends for like three months, you know, up, up north or wherever. And I said, there needs to be a better way. So I want to get your feedback on something because, um, this tends to come up a little bit often in the sense that the module Mm -hmm. answers Mm -hmm. are often discussed the needing to be copied word for word from Mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. And I would, and with page references and it's, but how, tell me about your thoughts on how that teaches you to be a midwife or how did how that teaches you to be like an order taker cog like I'm just writing it because I know that's going to give me the grade versus walking me through the whys and the background and the understanding and the history and the real true cognitive ability to understand the concept um this isn't uncommon. I'm not saying in midwifery schools, but it isn't uncommon with preceptors as well, where the preceptor will say, I need you to do it exactly how I do it before I explain to you why I'm doing it like mm-hmm. that. Like, I need you to have this muscle memory of do it like me. You can figure out your own way some other time, but you're here to learn from the way I do it. And I'm not telling you why just do it. Right. Um, I, I can see both sides to that, but with your experience of kind of like write my stuff word for word, and it still didn't suffice for the answer. How do you feel like you were growing and learning and developing? Oh, I wasn't. And it was super frustrating because like, like I, you know, said before, like I already have a bachelor's of science degree in something. I grew up in a very medically minded STEM based family. I, you know, my, I come from a long line of like engineers and things like that. So I don't come from like a ignorant, uneducated background. And for someone to sit here and be like, you don't have reading comprehension. I graduated high school with like a 3.8 GPA. So I'm sitting here and I'm just like, how can you sit here? And this is an entry level education session. And And I'm sitting here giving you your answers plus real world examples plus this. And you're like, no. And I'm like, but how is that teaching me to be a better midwife? Because I didn't copy your ego. So how long did you stay with this school before you realized that it wasn't the, it wasn't in aligned with your truth and with your learning? Um, so about a year and a half. Um, and that was mostly because I was just trying to get through these modules. It would take me almost three months to get through like one or two. And you're supposed to complete two at least every quarter. And it would just be like, I would just keep getting rejected and sent back, rejected and sent back. And it would get to the point where I was like, I don't understand what you want from me. And then I would get the threat of like, well, we're going to drop you if you don't pass. And then I would be like, well, then you have to let me know what you want from me so I can pass. And then it would, it would turn into, well, you have to copy me word for word. And then we would have arguments. And then I think I got kind of placed into that, you know, well, you're just a difficult woman category, which was really ironic because even in the book, I'm supposed to be copying there's a section about how you have to be a difficult woman to get ahead in midwifery, especially mm-hmm. when licensure. And 
um, you know, bills get passed and things. So I was just finding it kind of ironic that I'm being told to do one thing in this book I'm supposed to be copying, but then I'm questioning authority in another and I'm being put down in this, mm. as I'm progressing in this world that's supposed to be, you know, I'm supposed to be this badass human being that goes forth and fights for what I believe in. So it was just, it, it just wasn't working for me. And then as I kept standing up for myself, the, the more I kept getting, you know, pushed back on. And yeah, there's a lot of those like double um, mm-hmm. swords in birth work. As a doula, I know you I know that experience of being like, oh, well, you're the rogue doula. But then mm-hmm. it's like, why didn't you advocate for her? Right. Right. Well, <laughs> if I stand in front of the scissors of the episiotomy, I'll get kicked out of the hospital. Right. But if I don't say, <clears throat> um, they're about to start lidocaine for an episiotomy, would you like to talk right. to your doctor about changing positions? Right? Like, right. right. It goes right. that way in midwifery too. You're totally yeah. right. Like we need to be these badass um, law changing right. witches. Right. But don't speak you do against your preceptor or your school right. about the change in the education right. that they're offering. Right. How dare you stand up to them? You know, and I kind of experienced that with my first round of precepting too. There was like definitely some undertones of like the worst kind of racism where they think they're like an advocate for, you know, racial justice, but like really they're just, you know, doing it, doing their racial justice in a way that's actually harmful. You know, so there's like a lot of that too, where they're like, no, I'm helping black people, but I'm like, are you? Interesting. So how long before, so you were there for a year and a half and you kind of realized this wasn't your path. And then where did you go from there? Why did you, where, when did, where did you leave to? So the second I realized I was moving to Minnesota, I was like, they accept PEP. I said, so I'm just dropping. And so we kind of had a fight about that. And, uh, well, at first they were like, well, since you're so far behind now, you can choose to go on a pause. And so I said, yeah, let's do that. Let's go on a pause. And then I thought about it and then I decided, okay, I'm moving. So I'm going to drop. So I said, okay, no, I'm going to drop. Um, I would like my preceptor fee that you hold back. And so they were like, oh no, no, you're, you know, and so during that pause, it was, well, we go back to where you haven't submitted anything from and you don't owe any tuition for that period of time. And so I said, great. So, be, but because I was leaving now, all of a sudden I owed all this tuition. So they ended up taking my preceptor fee that was on hold for that tuition. So then there was threats of, you know, so now I had to go down this line of like, well, now I have to see you and, you know, all this stuff. And so now there's a settlement and I have an NDA signed, which states I'm not. Do you feel like you could have uncovered some of this in the beginning by asking more questions? I don't know. The person that I was speaking to in the beginning was actually really wonderful. Like their admin person, she ended up leaving about nine months into it and then they ended up having several different admin people like run through very quickly after and I feel like that was kind of a reflection of how things were run and I wish I would have known that sooner I feel like if I had asked more peers or if I had kind of followed my gut and done the initial first because you have the option to do that separately I would have only paid the two thousand dollars to do that separately 
versus now $12,000 later. And I just lose that. Right. Right. So for those of our listeners, um, some schools offer like different modules in which you don't have to fully enroll in the school first. You can, it's like an introductory course that's designed for um, doulas or birth assistants that want more information and education. And you can enroll in that course, get it. And once you complete, it counts as the first set of the rest of your midwifery education, but you aren't fully enrolled in the school. Um, so now that you're in PEP and okay, let's back up a little bit. You had a preceptor in LA. Yes. Yeah. How, so I, how did you choose that preceptor while going to this Mika accredited school? So when I was, when I was there, um, we would get like kind of mass blast emails sometimes from prior students that would say, oh, I'm looking for students. And then there was, you know, also you just reach out to, to places. I forget exactly how I ended up meeting up with this birth center, but I was like, cool birth center. I can bang it out. Like just get it done. Like I'm the type of person that I really love, like fast paced and being over overworked essentially. Like I, I love that. Um, Welcome to midwifery. Good job. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I feel like my ADHD just like loves, you know, being over, over processed. Um, so I, uh, so I found that and just dove right in and that was great. Um, the owner of the birth center wasn't necessarily my favorite. That's who I kind of had some issues with, but I didn't necessarily have to work with her directly. She just kind of owned it. She didn't really do any of the births. Um, the two midwives that were there were in the process of leaving and they were bringing in who was my primary preceptor. And she was actually so wonderful. I do feel super blessed to work with her because I hear so many horror stories about preceptors. And she had been a midwife when I met her for about 10 years. What was so amazing about her? Like what was like the best thing about her as a, as a teacher or as a preceptor? Um, so she had moved from Oklahoma. So she was really um, good with like rural midwifery. So she had had to deal with a lot of stuff with not a lot of resources and they don't have your, you know, or they didn't, I don't know if they do now, but they didn't have licensure and regulations there. Um, and she had had like a really long journey of education. She had kind of done what um, I'm doing now, you know, started me kind of switched to PEP, had to do like the whole, which I find that actually a lot of people have done. Um, and she's done birth work all over the world. She's gone to like England to deliver babies and she worked for a little bit in Israel and, you know, so, and she's done some stuff in South America. And so she's just had a really widespread range of experience and she's just super confident and very sweet and very human, you know, mm. and with teaching me was very human, which I found was really important and an aspect that um, Sorry, my kid's bringing me pancakes. You're fine. <laughs> That's <pretty sweet. laughs> um, which I didn't know was possible with preceptorship because you don't hear about it. And I just felt so grateful, you know, um, because I was going into it expecting to just be like, cool, I'm going to be abused and I, I'm going to get my license and then I can do something about it, mm. you know, later. Yeah. So I feel super grateful because I was kind of abused by the center. It was like, oh, you're the student. You get to do all the admin. And because the agreement was you don't have to pay me, which I think is bullshit anyways. There's a lot of preceptors that are like, you have to pay me to study under me, which I'm like, okay. Um, <coughs> so yeah, I think it can go like three ways, right? right. I've seen um, preceptor student relationships where 
the student has to pay the preceptor to be taught because of the additional like time and work that the preceptor puts into skills drills or the education or just like the extra energy of having a student there that's like what's that and what's that and what's that and so the student the the you know the preceptor just feels like the the way they are being reimbursed for the energy is through a monetary energetic exchange mm-hmm. um then there are some preceptors who believe that it is a symbiotic relationship and that the work that you do at the, at the birth center or for the midwife as like the assists Mm -hmm. or the cleaning or all of the stuff that you do with a birthing person is energetic exchange for the learning. Mm -hmm. And then there are some who pay the student Mm -hmm. to do that as well. So, um, it's that, you know, is different. It's going to be different for every student who is listening, sometimes it's just, you can't, there's nothing you can do about it. It's geographical. You only have this one situation in your area. If you have the ability to move for your preceptorship to find the right one that works for you. Cool. But, um, yeah, that that's, I'm glad that you started off with a really positive relationship. Yeah. What does, what, why Minnesota though? Like LA Um, to Minnesota, that's not exactly like a, a similar jump. No. Um, so a friend of mine actually lives in Wisconsin and I've done all of her births. Um, I did her, I met her in California, did her birth in California and then came out this way, fell in love with like the Midwest area. And then I started, um, dating my partner who is from California originally, and he lives out here and does school out here and came to visit a few times. And we decided that that's what we were going to do. And I kind of fell in love with the, the licensure and the birth culture. And it's, very widely accepted here. Licensure is also optional here. And so, which is kind of cool. So you can practice as autonomously as you want, um, or you can license and follow the regulations. Um, it's, it's just, it's a much nicer, like feeling too. just the culture is, is, is a bit, is a bit nicer. It's not as strict. It's, I don't feel like you're constantly fighting to keep what you already have, you know, like California, when I was leaving, they were trying to take away VBACs and, you know, it's just like this constant trying to take, 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 take from midwives. And, and also just like the cost of living is, is nicer. It was, it was getting to the point where it was just so expensive just to exist. I was like losing time with my children and, and being a student and still having to take doula births because I wasn't getting paid as a student. And so I was taking you know, up to 10 student midwife births a month, plus two to four doula births a month, plus, you know, still doing like five or six placentas a month, plus still trying to take care of my kids because I still had to pay for a sitter for all those times I was gone. Um, and eventually I started running out of money and would have to bring my kids with me to the birth center. And I asked my preceptor, you know, we had a little classroom that was attached that, you know, was upstairs. And so I would bring them with their sleeping bags and stick them upstairs and they'd sleep upstairs while I was, you know, getting my catches. And it was just a nightmare. And I was like, I can't, it's not sustainable. I I just couldn't. And so um, when I started dating my partner, I was just like, it just makes more sense. And, and it's nicer here. And we just, we love it. So did you look for a preceptor before you moved or did you move and then start interviewing with preceptors? 
yeah, no, I moved and I was like, whatever happens is going to happen. And I just jumped and here we are a year later and I still haven't caught a baby towards my license. And I'm like this close to being finished. It's, it's, it's kind of stressful. Um, I am currently with a preceptor kind of, she submitted her paperwork in like December, January to NARM to be a preceptor. And I'm supposed to this month start doing catches with her, but then she's also covering at a birth center starting next month for the summer. So then it's kind of up in the air. That's the only downside is Los Angeles was like filled with preceptors and I would have been done by now if I had stayed with my previous preceptor. But um, here everyone takes like one student at a time and there's not a ton of them. Um, and so that's been the biggest like the biggest hurdle. And yeah. So you've been working with her just like as an assistant, that's like everything you do doesn't count, but learning her ways Mm -hmm. so that that way, once she's approved Mm -hmm. by NARM, it's just a really smooth process. So how many catches do you need before that phase is over for you? Or how many, what, whatever is like checkoffs of anything. 10 catches and 15 initial visits. And then I can sit, it's like so ridiculously close. Um, but, and how many does she take a month? She takes like three to four a month. Okay. So like once she comes back from doing this in August, September timeframe, three, mm-hmm. four months later. Yeah. Um, unless I find someone to co, you know, to co-teach with, because, you know, I can sit and then I'll still have to do my five, you know, post or whatever, but I'll at least be able to sit and have that like credential at least locked in. Yeah. Um, even What's the birth community like there? It's actually really wonderful. Yeah, it's it's pretty great from what I can see so far. And even though I haven't been able to like really lock down like a preceptor, you know, so far, it's um they've all been super sweet and really great and um really helpful. When I first moved here, I reached out and um one midwife met me for like a socially distanced like coffee meet. And she said, I can't take you because I have a student and then I'm transitioning to a partnership, but here's a list of midwives that I think you could reach out to and check. And so they've been super helpful and really, um, is that you that's beeping? I think so. Let me. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't something like about to die on me. And I, no, I have, I have a client like texting me and I didn't realize it was on the computer. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's and it's really great and everyone works together. We um, we have a group called um, MCCPM, so it's like the Minnesota Council of Midwives, and I'm I joined that board immediately, and you know students are allowed to join, and um, we do like fundraising and kind of keep each other in line and do um, you know legislation and you know it's it's really great. And there's like a group thread that everyone kind of keeps track of. And if we want to do orders of medications or, you know, who has this, or I need recommendations for this, it's all kept on like a group chat. And it's just, it's really wonderful. Like a really great sense of community. Yeah. So do you plan to stay? Like, where do you plan on practicing and why? Um, I do plan on practicing here and in Wisconsin. Um, I'm kind of on the border, so I'm in Minneapolis, and I do a lot. I've done actually probably more births in Wisconsin than in Minnesota at this point, um, as far as an assist staff. So um, I do I do like it here. Um, I think we'll stay here for a little bit. The other nice thing is um, they're trying to do a certified midwife uh, legislature, so I'll be able to bridge um, if they do that, which would be great. And then I'll have um, a similar scope to a CNM 
um, in right. the state of Minnesota, which would be wonderful. Cool. Um, yeah. So I think that'll, that'll be great. So the next part is I'd love to hear a birth story, right? So birth story of your choosing, if you want to like, remember a birth story that stood yeah. out to you and your, in your career, or if there's something specific, like Augustine teaches a lot of courses yeah. in regards to marketing your business, breech birth, suturing, um, fetal heart tones, defensive charting, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot of courses for midwifery wisdom collective. You should definitely check them out. Um, and they're, they are also like, um, meek and, and CEUs and things yeah. like that as well. But sometimes I'd love to hear like a birth story that you have where maybe one of those topics was really kind of at the forefront of that, like a funky tear and how you learned that suture or a breach or where you <laughs> felt like you had litigation kind of coming at you and you felt like your charting was like spot on or could have used some work um, or just a birth story that really stood out to you as something like that helped you develop as a midwife. Yeah. Um, so I know when we did our like initial questions and stuff, I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, just, there was just like a moment that like clicked where I was like, this is where I was supposed to be. And I was thinking about like the charting one. Um, and my very first resuscitation was really fun. Um, and I put fun in, you know, <laughs> quotes yeah. cause it was, um, it was scary, but I remember, um, studying charting because I, you know, my personality type. I'm like, I need to have that perfect. And, you know, that perfectionism really kind of came through with, with the charting. When this came up, I was, um, in that transitional phase of, you know, being a cis going into my primaries and, um, this birthing person came into the center and they weren't supposed to be my person. They were supposed to be somebody else's person. And they were like getting ready to push. And there was no way that the, the person who, you know, was supposed to actually be there, was going to get there and her water, water's released and it was bright, thick green with particulate and birth was imminent, couldn't transfer and baby needed a full resuscitation with, um, had aspirated meconium. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm going to have to use my NPR or NRP skills, my um, charting skills, my all this stuff. And I just remember feeling so relieved that I had really studied charting and really studied my NRP and really, you know, was able to know what all the tools were that she needed, how to actually do fetal heart tones and what like retractions looked like and, and being able to chart and be able to hand those things off at the same time was really, you know, really helpful being able and being able to activate EMS because it was just her and I, you know, at the center. Um, like the other student or another certain like, another midwife. Midwife. Yeah. Okay. So, like, and you were primarying this birth. So no, I was just assisting. Which okay. Was, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah. The, the person that was the other student, it was supposed to be her assist. And I was technically in my primary phase and she wasn't going to make it. And so I was like, all you know, all assist. And, and it was kind of awkward, you know, because they had never met me before. And I'm like, hi, I'm here to help, you know, resuscitate your baby. <laughs> Um, but it was, it was kind of a really intense first resuscitation. Like I had never even really had to see like a baby be bagged before. And we had to full on go in with the Dealey and like suction out, you know, their lungs and, you know, get them on blow by because they were having retractions and transfer to children's. And, you know, it was, you know, and then having to deal with dealing with the transfer was kind of a nightmare. And so kind of being able to 
know how to speak to EMS beforehand too, because that was, that was kind of, that was kind of intense too, because they don't, they don't know what they're doing, honestly, when they come in, you know, they're used to dealing with adults and they don't, they definitely don't know what to do when they come into a birthing situation, because they're like, what do you mean this person just gave birth and we're taking an infant in or a newborn in, you know, they, they have no idea. And then when I was on the phone with EMS, she's like, so someone just had a baby. And I said, yeah, we need to transfer them to children's, you know, this, that, and the other. And she goes, do you have a shoelace to tie off the cord? I was like, ma'am, we are midwives at a birthing center. I'm pretty sure I just stated that. What do you mean a shoe? I said, no, the baby was born about 30 minutes ago. We need to transfer them to children's. It was a nightmare. So like they thought you were like an unassisted birth at home that like something happened accidentally tie off with your shoelace. What is that? Like, and second of all, like we, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, we would probably just want to keep that cord intact as long right. as possible right. during a resuscitation right. um, based on NRP guidelines. <laughs> so that's so interesting that EMS would be like, oh, your baby needs resuscitation cut off the cord the placenta. with a dirty shoelace, with a shoelace, the dirty unsterile shoelace for a compromised baby. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it was, it was really nice to to be able to know how to chart in an emergency situation and be able to still assist, you know, during, during that. Um, and it was really nice to, you know, know that those skills were in there because you learn them and you always kind of second guess that you actually have those down until you need to use them, you know? And so that was just kind of a nice little boost of confidence of like, Oh, I can do this. Um, you know, cause you can, you can practice all you want, but until you're in that situation. Yeah. So for like earlier students or anyone listening, like walk us through a little bit of kind of what was going through your mind. So mom walks in waters release meconium with particulates. Can you tell our students what particulates would mean to you? Oh, yeah. Like, what does that tell you? So usually it means, um, baby has suffered some type of distress at some point and has released meconium. Um, and a meconium with particulate that's thick also has a higher risk of meconium aspiration, which usually means that they have a hard time transitioning, keeps their lungs wet, has a hard time breathing, which is what happened with this baby. And then when they were breathing, they were having retractions, which is, you know, the, um, instead of breathing in and out, their ribs were like, you know, skin was like sucking into their ribs. So it's not actually, um, what is that? It's not actually Standing. like breathing. Yeah. It's there. So when you saw the meconium and you saw the particulates, like you got the ambu bag out, you got oh, the yeah. oxygen everything turned on, go. you got everything, you got like PPV yeah. was like ready yep. and you were listening to heart tones. What were heart tones like? Heart tones were fine. Um, heart tones were fine. Rests were, um, rests were there. They were like in the twenties, um, but they were wet. They just would not dry out. Um, oh, so like baby came like flying out. We're not talking like out. water's released. And we had like 30 minutes of like pushing and laboring, no, like water's no, released no, no. and baby, baby like, came. She, yeah. Baby was there. Yeah. So there was like oh. no signs of distress at all while we were, you know, she came in and she, we had time to barely fill the tub. Waters were like, and baby was there. So it yeah, was like, got it. Yeah. So baby was there and then she came out and she like immediately kind of let out a cry and she started to transition. She was, her tone was still pretty good, but it was just lungs would not clear. We even got like the bottle nipple out. We're trying to like the cuss on the back and, you know, like all that stuff and they just would not clear. And then, so went in with the dealy after a couple of PPV, um, got her out of the tub completely. 
um, and just started sucking out just like thick green nasty out of her lungs. And it was just like that no. delete. You always hope it doesn't overflow into your mouth. <laughs> oh, so, gross. So, gross. so what was the real case? Okay, so like I'm at imagining and for our people listening, you know, you can imagine the heat, like the energy in the room, right? Mm-hmm. Waters break. You see the meconium and the particulates babies coming out your, what is the energy like with your preceptor? Like how is she verbally and yeah. Like, what did that look like? What it sounds like it was a good experience from her versus some students who are listening or even midwives who are listening. I know you can get to the point where maybe it's not so calm, right? Like you're throwing things around the room or yelling at the student to go hurry and get that. Or like, why aren't, you know, so what was that like? It was really great. That's the other great thing about that particular preceptor is she, no matter what emergency situation, she just remains so level and so calm because she's literally like seen everything. Like even with, um, she was my midwife as well for my um, surrogate birth and I hemorrhaged like her worst hemorrhage, um, which was great. And even during that, like I wasn't scared and I knew I was dumping blood because she's just so calm. And which was really wonderful. The, the parents were never afraid during the resuscitation. I was able to stay calm too. And I was like, oh, I know something's wrong, but here's your bulb. Here's your dilly. Cool. This is what heart tones are. Let me chart this for you. Great. I'll go get EMS, you know? And it was great because it kept everybody in the room really calm and level. And, um, and even when EMS walked in with their, you know, bigger energy, if you will, um, because they were, one of them seven men that walk into the room all at once no for it was it's it's a lot it's a lot and then one of them's you know like 21 22 and like you know oh what are we doing today and I'm like oh can you just calm down um and they were able to keep it really you know she was able to keep everything calm and even when they were like oh baby was just born she was able to keep her voice nice and calm so then EMS kind of came down a little bit too which was which is really great um yeah. Yeah. There's a very select few of midwives. And it's always really interesting to like meet those people. There's a very select few of midwives who actually get more calm during crazy situations, right? Like it's all of a sudden they're like, okay, we need to go into McRoberts now, <laughs> you know, like super pubic, please. You know, it's like, it's great. Oh, okay. You know, like that, that's what tells me it's an emergency yeah. is that they're like overly calm for the yeah. parent, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. So, and did you kind of spend a lot of time talking with her about charting afterwards? Like once baby was transferred, mm-hmm. it was like, let's sit and look at this chart together yeah. and walk through timestamps and what we felt and what we heard and what we did. Yeah, she's really great with that. We always um, like um, debriefed after births and um, what we could have done better or, you know, and with that one, she was like, I was really impressed. You did really great. You did everything you were supposed to. And I was like, yes, my type A personality got it. You know, I was really stoked. Um, And then the only thing was with like the EMS call, like I got a little like 
jumbled because it was the first time I'd really had to make one like that. The only other time I'd had to call was someone at hemorrhage and we had to transfer her in, but like everything was kind of stable and calm, but I just didn't know like what necessarily to say to EMS. Well, you also didn't know they were going to ask you to tie it off with a shoelace. <laughs> right. That kind of threw me. And then also dealing with calling in for children's because we usually don't transfer just a baby. You know, usually when we're transferring, it's before baby's born and we're transferring the birthing person. We're not transferring just a baby. And children's was the person that I had to talk to that was the attending was not the nicest of people. And they kind of treated me poorly because we were transferring a baby and eventually ended with me being like, well, they're on an ambulance heading your way. So find a bed. Bye. Click. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's just, you're telling. Yeah. Right. That's it. You're telling right. like, this is what's happening. Expect them in 20 minutes. Right. And it was a mile down the road. So I was like, they'll be there in five, find a bed. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. So, and we can totally cut this part out if you're not, in, if you don't want to talk about it, but you mentioned something that I guess maybe I missed in our notes earlier, but, um, how many surrogate births have you oh, had? Just the one. Um, and so that was the other kind of part of moving during the pandemic. That was fun. So I delivered my Sarah baby at home to 220. Um, I lost about 2,400 mLs of blood. And then I moved in April of 2020 by myself with a hemoglobin of eight during a pandemic. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your felt like? What was your reasoning to do a surrogacy pregnancy during midwifery school while having two other children? Um, I literally caught a baby on my due date. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I want pictures of that, by the way. Like that needs to be our like icon for the screen. (laughs) Yeah. 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 yeah, so I um, had like this like friend acquaintance that had had um, some some issues with getting pregnant, you know, like a decade or so before, and she had had a bunch of stuff removed, and they had some embryos, and I had worked in third party for a long time, so that's another history of mine. Is I was a third party coordinator for like egg donation and stuff for a long time, and I worked in you know reproductive health for for like a decade, um, and I've donated eggs myself and stuff like that, and I love being pregnant but I'm done with my own kids. And so they had, asked, she had asked me if I would carry for her. And I was like, yeah, I said, as long as you allow me to not have a birth in the hospital, as long as I stay low risk. And she was like, yeah, I'm totally on board with that. And I was like, great. So that's what we ended up doing. And, um, since I, you know, since I stayed low risk, we, uh, we switched from the birth center I was working at to having a home birth. Cause I do have fairly fast labors. My first one was five hours in direct OP. My second one was six hours this one was an hour. So I never would have even made it anywhere. Um, so I'm glad we did that one at home. Um, but like yeah, a little so, bit of a connection to hemorrhaging with precipitous birth too. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And IVF has a slightly higher risk of third stage com- complications. Plus my placenta was, um, lower uterine segment anterior, and I had developed a fibroid during the IVF med. So I was like set up. I just didn't think I was going to dump blood. Yeah. Um, (laughs) um, yeah. So because it was for a friend, Mm -hmm. did you go through an agency where you compensated well, or was it literally just like through altruistic? Um, I was compensated a little bit. I wouldn't say well, but it was kind of like, well, if I have to take a couple months off, like this would be what, you know, what I would need to be able to take those couple months off. So that's what I was compensated. Yeah. Would you do it again? No. I mean, I would maybe, 
I don't know it maybe not necessarily for a friend um I still think surrogacy is a wonderful wonderful thing um I just the boundaries that were crossed during that were a little there was like a lot more gray to it than there should have been um which is also probably partially my fault because I allowed boundaries to be to be crossed um so going back I would have set a little bit stronger boundaries initially um and then also just yeah go ahead sorry so so then also just like what it did to my body personally like I was in my you know my 30s um it was technically third baby and then losing the blood that I lost um so just knowing what recovery was like after that um and those were my main reasons why I wouldn't did you end up transferring for a blood transfusion no I should have I should. Yeah. Cause you remained pretty low for quite a while after that. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I absolutely should have, (laughs) you know, do you feel like, um, and I might be jumping here, but do you, you know, I feel like you could have a very specific calling in your midwifery journey in regards to serving surrogacy experiences and people and birthing people who have had, um, you know, (laughs) the systemic negativity and yet at the same time, of course, all of just like people who are looking for midwifery led care too. Um, But you have some unique qualities that offer the ability to connect with so many wide varieties of people. So, um, you know, knowing that now, like, what do you think your, your like pillars of your midwifery, um, uh, offerings are going to be like, do you feel like that connects with that in any way? Um, I do. Um, and in fact, I have been trying to kind of like write a, how to support like surrogate and like IVF pregnancy, um, class. And I'm like about halfway done with it, but I'm also trying to write it from a neutral perspective. And I do feel like there was a lot of emotions in there for a while. So I feel like I'm finally getting to a point where I can write it from a more neutral perspective. Um, because I do feel like that's important to to not write it from emotion and more from evidence base. Um, and so that's more going to be for like doulas and maybe midwives too, you know, um, because I do feel like my midwife did struggle with trying to remain neutral because she was like, but you're a person, you're autonomous, but then you're carrying another person's baby. So you do need to at least cater a little bit to, you know, the intended parents needs. Um, Yeah. There's like little things like I've heard of someone saying something like, well, you're not allowed to have sex towards your third trimester. And it's like, you can't tell a woman that. And it's like, well, Ooh, cause what if, you know, like, so I get that, like that challenge between the two. Yeah. And it all comes down to what's in the contract too. It's like, there's a lot of contracts that people, you know, they don't realize that you're supposed to read those as the care provider. And a lot of it will say stuff like, you know, the intended parents allowed to do X, Y, Z, but you can't cause a problem in the relationship between the care provider and the pregnant person, you know, and a lot of the times they'll, they'll take that as like a gray area of like, well, I want these tests run. And that's kind of what happened to me is like, well, we want this stuff run, but don't tell her. And I'm like, I have access to my chart. (laughs) Like this is my practice that I'm studying at. I have access to my chart. Like I'm not going to see that. Uh, so yeah, there was, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. You've had a wonderful journey. What (laughs) advice would you offer to either, you know, people wanting to become a midwife, new students, someone who's in your phase currently, um, 
what advice would you offer them? Um, I would, I would tell them that like for students, especially like it's hard, expect it to be hard. Um, you'll get through it. Um, it like, don't give up. Like there'll definitely be moments where you're like crying in your shower and like, this is ridiculous. Why did I pick this journey? But there's a reason you pick this journey and it's because you can handle it. And you'll have these moments throughout your experience as a student midwife and as a midwife, and they'll always be really hard moments. You know, um, you might have a bad outcome. You might have a really crummy birth that lasts like 72 hours that you had to make a really that, you know, a really crappy decision on, and it'll come down to this person, you know, is crying because they don't want to transfer because that's the absolute last thing they wanted to do. And you have to look at them and be like, but it's the best thing for you. And you have to do it, you know? And so like you pick this for a reason and you're strong enough to do it. So you can do it. Yeah. Where can people find you? Like, where can we find you on Instagram, Facebook, donate towards your midwifery journey? Do you have a Venmo, PayPal? Uh... (laughs) Um, So my, my business um, Instagram right now is um, Legra birth and wellness. So L E G R a birth and it's um, Gaelic for with love. And then um, my PayPal is the PayPal, you know, dot com and then my name. So Brianna Davison, which is spelled super great. <laughs> so B-R-I-E-A-N-A-D-A-V-I-S-O-N. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining with us today. I'm excited to share this information with our midwifery world. 